Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. You might have heard this week that four Massachusetts Teamsters were acquitted of trying to violently strong-arm the TV show Top Chef into hiring union labor. We'll be joined later in the show by Brian Amaral, one of our Boston court reporters, to share some stories from inside the courtroom, including some splashy testimony by host Padma Lakshmi. You'll also want to stick around to the end of the show when we discuss a lawyer who decided to post a fake dating profile for his opponent. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson, who's back with us this week. Hey, hey guys. <laughs> you Wait, now was that you or was that, is that me? Because I, I did a very, very good impression of you last my, week. My objections to last week's episode are manifold. Uh, because I don't take myself too seriously. I like rip on myself and I'm able to feel humor about Wait, myself. Amber, okay. he doesn't take himself too seriously. Except for what he's about to say right, in right, the right, next right. moment. What I do That's take always a good se- caveat. What I do take seriously is the uh, craft of impersonation and impressions. Mm-hmm. And they were just bad. It's <laughs> not that you did it of me. It's just right. that they were bad. My second objection is that at one point, and it went by the board without much commentary from the room, Bill at one point called me Phallix. <laughs> which is a okay. whole other thing. I did. I in, also in yeah. fairness, like, what that is was going on maybe there? not yeah. great. Yeah, true. <laughs> well, it was true. like a faux Alex, but then it turned. You know, it just it it obviously it kind of got away from you there. There right. were yeah. there were a lot of giggles after that. I just yeah. that's what I had to offer in that Probably moment. Yeah. yeah. Well, you guys will get another chance. I think I'm going to be out. I was at a wedding, and I've got another one on the books in about six weeks. So just so everyone needs to practice, tighten it up a little bit. That's okay. all I'm saying. You're getting I married mean, again. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's you know, it's fun. Everybody should do I'll it. I'll say what I said to you before when we discussed the various impersonations of you on the show. At some point, Bill will be out. Totally. Practice your hello hellos. Mm-hmm. Come up with a really good one. All right. Okay. Yeah, definitely. He gives you yeah. a lot of lot to work with because your hello hellos are different week to week. They are. Um, luckily, I don't take myself too seriously either. But totally. <laughs> but. <laughs> Well, let's take something seriously today, and that could be the case you want to talk about first, Alex. It's a really big one. Yeah. So yesterday, this is this is no BS. This really happened. I was going over some finances with my wife over the past month, which we do from time to time, and I noticed I was like, this cable bill seems a lot higher than it did when we first signed up for this service like two years ago, and it is uh, it is that kind of of uh, sort of odd curiosity that is at issue in the first case we're going to talk about. Uh, A trial started this week because the government has asked a California federal judge for a $4 billion judgment against DirecTV uh, because DirecTV has allegedly been very deceptive and misleading about its contract terms and its subscription fees for its customers. I think this is something we can all identify with a little bit. I was going to say, I can think of any number of reasons why I hate my cable company. <laughs> but uh, maybe you could give us a little bit more on the specific end of what the uh, the FTC says is going on here. Definitely. And the thing that probably jumped out at you when I was just giving you the rundown there is the $4 billion yeah, it's crazy. damages. And that's a big number. And that stems from other big numbers. Because what's alleged here is that between 2007 and 2015, um, DirecTV added about 33 million customers. And during that time, they also circulated about 78 billion ads that the government now says wow. failed to inform. Yeah, basically the, the, the allegations are such that those ads and the company's website failed to inform people that 
you know, for this like 12 months of video and cable service, you actually had to enter into a two year contract. And <laughs> so, that's, yeah. So did they say, so they showed you a price for one year without telling you that you had to sign up for two years? Yeah, in so many words. <laughs> I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, it was just, I mean, you know how that, I mean, again, right. we've, we've, seen, we've all seen these commercials. DirecTV is very aggressive advertiser. So that's the main claim. There are, there are also things about, um, so there's like yeah. early cancellation fees there's and all that. There's early cancellation fees. And then you know how sometimes when you sign up for cable, you get like three months of HBO and Showtime sure. for free. Mm-hmm. This, the terms uh, of the contract basically acquire, required you to affirmatively not, like, you know, request to not get those anymore. Or they would just start charging you. Yeah. And this uh. is stuff that is all kind of embedded in the agreement. But the government claims was not sufficiently communicated to the customers. So what does DirecTV say in response to all of that? Right. Like, we, I feel like we're all so conditioned to, like, <laughs> like it, it is the defense, uh, well, don't you know that we're all schmucks and we do this? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Well, the whole point of a trial is you got to hear both sides. So we'll say both sides. So um, basically their response is two-pronged. They deny the allegations sort of flat out. They say we're very clear about our pricing and contracting terms to our customers and uh to support that, they trotted out a lot of subscription renewal st- uh, statistics. And so basically they're saying, like, if people continue to use us, it can't be that bad. He, the, the lawyer actually said, they said, how can a customer, uh, you know, who's being deceived, how can they come back? Which is it's probably not my place to editorialize, but, I mean, we'll, we'll see how that holds up. But then, <laughs> even beyond the allegations, they're also fighting the second prong, which is that they're saying that I don't know where you got this four billion dollar number, but it's completely you know unsupported by law or legal theory. And you can kind of already see we've seen it before in a million other trials about like you know the merits is one thing, and then there's you can see already there's going to be a whole other spool of litigation sure. about if if they're found to be you know, yeah even if we even if we did do this we don't owe this much money <laughs> yeah right. it's, it's, it's the classic you know hedging but. Yeah. So we've been we have a court reporter who's reporting Dorothy on this. Dorothy Atkins, yes, in yeah, San Francisco. So Dorothy's been writing some good stories. So what highlights have we seen so far? Yeah. Know. Well, like I say, it just started on Monday and expected to go for about three weeks, just to point that out. Um, already, though, in the first couple days of the trial, one of DirecTV's own executives uh, has already testified that through their own uh, internal metrics, they discovered that one in three people felt quote, misled about the company's pricing. That's a lot of people. And uh, a really great piece of color from Dorothy's story was that actually when that executive was on the stand, they played audio of a sales call. You know how when you call the cable company, it's like this call may be recorded for quality assurance. Yeah. Another thing. It this can call be, may be recorded for litigation. <laughs> I'll say that's another thing it can be recorded for. It ends up uh, in a, in a uh, courtroom proceeding. And then basically during that call, the sales agent was not at all forthcoming about pricing. And then it didn't mention this two-year contract thing until about 15 or 20 minutes into the call. That's a long time before you get yeah, to that. Yeah, after like some weird small talk and stuff like that. And then when the recording was over, the executive basically said, yeah, that's a that's a that's that's an example of a very bad sales call. And uh, that sales agent uh, would have been fired if management knew about it. So like there's already like a lot of weird hedging going on. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, we you know, I'm, I've never been one for prognostication, but it uh, looks like we're in for... Kind of a wild ride here. Yeah, that's a great one for us to have talked about. Thanks, Alex. Bill, what do you want to talk about today? Something that we're seeing a lot of in the news these days, defamation lawsuits against media companies. There was a ruling earlier this week that the New York Times must face a defamation lawsuit filed by a Loyola professor who says that the paper misquoted him 
to make it appear that he was defending slavery. Oh, that's so, okay. That's a tough set of facts there. Oh, yeah. So. How, about, how about we go a little deeper into the facts? Yeah. Right. So, right. Um, so they ran a story in 2014. It was about Senator Rand Paul and his potential run at the White House. And the story tried to get into the idea that Rand Paul is connected to certain libertarian academics and that that may cause problems for him if he were to run for president. One of those academics was Walter Block, a professor of economics at Loyola University. Um, the key here is that the following a phone interview with the Times, um, Block was quoted as saying that slavery was, quote, not that bad. Uh, that uh, was. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. stay with me. Yeah. Um, so the story also later quoted him as saying that Woolworths had the right to bar black people from its lunch counter. So um, he sued in 2014, claiming that the way that the quotes are presented in the story was out of context and that it distorted what he was actually telling the reporter to falsely make it look like he was supporting slavery. Okay. What What in the world could he have been saying that included that stuff that isn't yeah. him supporting slavery? Seems like context is important both right. legally and journalistically and, here. And also, yeah. I'm just very curious how he's yeah, trying to, right. like, not... Yeah, this just sounds awful for him. So. Right. So the lawsuit included a a description of what he says he said. Okay. Um, I don't think it's supposed to be verbatim, but it's like a, here's what I expressed mm -hmm. to the yep. reporter. And it said that his quotes were from a longer interview where he was articulating the importance of, quote, the law of free association. And he was saying that 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 chattel slavery in the South pre-Civil War was, you know, that it was that, that slaves were forced to associate with their masters. And that was what was so bad about it. The coercion. Correct. And, you know, if that right hadn't been violated, that slavery wasn't so bad. That so it was just that, like a job. That was that's that's what he says. Yeah. That's what it said in the in the thing that and it. But it the thing is, even when he was explaining what he said, I I mean I I could see it's it still came off as so offensive well, that you know yeah. and um <clears throat> so he says that the only real problem was that was that the relationship was compulsory. So he was sort of saying what he is claiming is that he was saying slavery was not so bad. If he, he's yeah, he's trying to make some libertarian like he's labor making... labor participation commentary. I don't want to put words in his mouth. Lord knows the Times got in enough trouble with that. But okay, so what's the sort of like thread forward? Yeah, there? so he yeah. sued in uh, September of 2014, and the case was fairly quickly dismissed. It was dismissed last summer under what's known as an anti-slap law, yeah. which is um, they're, they're state statutes that have been passed in states around the country that they're designed to allow people to quickly escape lawsuits when a lawsuit could threaten your First Amendment rights. You know, if yeah. you are a local gadfly and the city government sues you, you can file an anti-slap motion and get the case dismissed. Same thing if you're a newspaper and some someone, mm -hmm. some figure sues you to, to chill your speech. But what happened this week is that the Fifth Circuit said that ruling was premature, that it was that there were still unresolved questions that could eventually lead a jury to side with Block on this question, that if Block expressed to the reporter what he is saying he did, he was trying to make the point that that slavery was bad uh, and that the, you know, it was bad for these, I think we already hit on it, that it, that would probably still offend a lot of people the way he phrased it, but 
what he is claiming is that that it was, you know, that he wasn't trying to say it wasn't so bad. He was is, trying to say like he was asserting it wasn't a counterfactual so bad except for this bad thing. Exactly. About we have it. A, we have a qu- the quote from the ruling was that um, yeah. you know if if he is saying what he said he did, um, then jurors could find that quote the decontextualized quotation falsely portrayed him as communicating that chattel slavery itself was not problematic. Exactly the opposite of the point that he says he was making. End quote. So okay. Um, so that sends the case back to the trial court. There's going to be discovery, and the New York Times is going to presumably move to dismiss the case again, but only after after there's been discovery and other things like we that. Can, we can move past. Is he, has he been deemed a public figure in he the has. case? Okay, because so, that's we, we don't have to belabor that, but if, when it gets to decision time... It's still an uphill climb for yeah. him. He, he, the court mentioned that he was a public figure, which, okay. uh, I don't know, you media law nerds out there, but that it's a very high standard that makes it really, really hard for you to sue someone for defamation. That You have to basically prove that you did it on purpose. Yeah, malice. That you, yeah. Knew, you knew it was false and you, and you did it anyway. Yeah. So this case is going to be important. It seems like it's going to be a big fight coming over yeah. this one. But um, right now, we've heard a lot about defamation lately. So mm-hmm. how does this fit into sort of the landscape of defamation law right now? You know, last summer, we heard during the presidential campaign, then-candidate Donald Trump telling people that he wanted to open up the libel laws to make it easier to sue for defamation. That hasn't happened, but we have certainly seen a rash of defamation cases over the last bit of time. Yeah, There was obviously the Gawker case, that $140 million verdict that ended up shuttering the company. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot on the pod. Yeah. Um, there's the the pink slime trial against ABC that eventually ABC paid uh, an ungodly sum to settle. To just 177 get it million, I right. think. Yeah. Um, over their coverage of pink slime, the uh, meat additive. There is a new case filed just recently by Eric Bowling, the recently uh, fired or resigned Fox News personality over lewd texts that he sent and the Huffington Post reporter that broke the story. And funny enough, there's another case filed against the New York Times by Sarah Palin over certain advertising material that her campaign put out about the shooting of Gabby Giffords a couple of years back. And and then the New York Times mentioned it and and she sued them. So they were in court this week arguing that case. So the New York Times media attorneys are very busy right now. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of high profile ones going on. Let's just let's just check that copy, gang. That's that's all that's 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 scary. We're going to have to. Yeah. 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 So. All right. We'll be watching these for our own purposes. Thanks, Bill. Yeah. Thank you. saw clashes between union reps and reality television producers wrapped up in Boston this week. A jury acquitted four Massachusetts Teamsters of trying to strong-arm their way onto production teams for the popular cooking show Top Chef. The verdict came down after a two-week trial that saw a host of accusations, including extortion, racism, and threats of assault. On the scene for it all was our Boston court reporter, Brian Amaral, who joins us now on the phone to tell us what it was really like in the courtroom. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Amber. So... This is a really, there's a lot of headlines that are really grabby in this case. We've got, you know, Union Muscle from the Teamsters. We've got Top Chef, a show that I love and have watched for years. I'm sure most people have seen it. Big fan. And then a bunch of accusations about what went on in the case. And it kind of obscures what the core legal issues were. So can you just sort of orient us to what this case was really all about? Sure. It started in around June of 2014. Top Chef, as 
as uh, the loyal fans like you know, goes around from city to city and will film an entire season uh, in the city. In 2014, they picked Boston. This group of Teamsters found out that they were in the city, and Top Chef is not a union show, and the Teamsters didn't very much like that. So they found out that they were going to be at this restaurant in Milton, Massachusetts. They had been asking them for union jobs for a couple of days to that point, and Top Chef had been saying no. So they showed up, five Teamsters showed up, and all hell broke loose, really. It was, uh, it was the, the, the scene that they described, that the prosecutors described was pushing and shoving. These Teamsters tried to force their way into the restaurant. The restaurant patrons were terrified. They slashed tires, allegedly. When Padma Lakshmi, the host of the show, showed up, one of the Teamsters allegedly reached into her car and told her that he was going to bash her pretty little face in. Ah, it's crazy. Um, and so they were later indicted for extortion, which is a federal crime when a when union members use threats of economic harm and violence to try to get wages. It's not a federal crime, though, if you have a legitimate labor objective. And that's really what this came down to. Yeah, that you, you sort of got ahead of me there, but we started off by saying that we got an acquittal here, and these are some pretty wild accusations that we're talking about being thrown around. Can you can you break it down for us a little more? You started to get after it a little bit there uh, in terms of the strategy that the counsel for the Teamsters uh, pursued to, to get an acquittal here. It was really their only hope. If this had become a, a referendum on whether these guys were thugs and bullies, <laughs> I think we're we're talking a whole different kettle of fish. Yeah. Uh, but really, the law says that even violence, even the use of violence, you can't prosecute it under federal law if the union members had a legitimate labor objective. So they kind of they downplayed the violence accusations, and they did try to poke holes in those theories, and they said, you know, they made it seem like these pampered Hollywood celebrities were <laughs> exaggerating and, and that they had, were making, not not making any of it up, but really just exaggerating what happened. Well, yeah, and like they don't understand what goes on on the picket line, and, you know, this is sort of their, this is like the unionist bread, bread and butter, right? Right. Uh, you know, in, in closing arguments, one of the, the arguments that was made was that this is, I'll, I'll, I'll quote here from one of the Teamsters' attorneys, he said, this is all an exaggeration, this is all Hollywood film industry, people that don't <laughs> like being called names. Yeah. Ms. Lakshmi wasn't allowed to go into the front entrance, and she didn't like that. So they <laughs> made it seem, they, they kind of, which really sets up this interesting dichotomy of these four, there were five charged originally, one of them pled guilty, so four of them stood trial, these four middle-aged, burly-chested <laughs> Boston-area Teamsters against um, one of the most beautiful women on the planet and a lot of Hollywood producers and crew members. And it was this really interesting dichotomy to watch play out in federal court. So, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about, about Padma. We've talked about some of these other characters that were involved in the case. Are there... Um, are there any other sort of moments in the case that, that jump out at you from, from being there, moments on the stand, different things that, that really spring to mind? Well, there's one that obviously springs to mind right away, which the, the day that Padma Lakshmi was going to be testifying, I showed up to court and saw a lot of cameras outside, a lot of reporters waiting around, and I just kind of 
rolled my eyes and made my way into the courthouse. And uh, <laughs> well, you're a seasoned was, pro, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not. Uh, I you know I obviously am not very impressed by the celebrities like that. <laughs> uh, so I was walking into the uh, courthouse, and as I as I sort of made the turn to go toward the elevators, and I got in the elevator, and I saw out of the corner of my eye that somebody was walking up to get on, so I held the elevator for Padma Lakshmi, who got in the elevator with me and uh, rode up. And um, I, I wish I, I wish there was a better ending for this story, but I just kind of froze. And uh, Well, she probably uh, wouldn't have said anything to you anyway, because she probably was thinking like, oh, I can't talk to reporters about this or, you know. The the judge, I, I'm sure she wouldn't have talked to me regardless of the circumstances in the universe, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, but the judge, because of other crazy stuff that had gone on in this trial, had, had effectively put a gag order uh, on everybody, including witnesses and, and both parties, so there was no way that, that I was going to get a peep out of her. Um, I probably didn't have to look so frightened, but uh, I, I was not able to uh, to even ask her. But, you know, she, she honestly, it was kind of one of those moments where uh, celebrities, they're just like us. They, yeah. uh, she just kind of looked like she didn't want to be there. She looked, uh, you <laughs> sure know, like she anybody heading into federal court. <laughs> yeah. court she just kind of looked a little, you know, slightly bored, slightly irritated. Uh, and then uh, she ended up taking the stand. And, and speaking really of a lot of the, of the terror that she felt from these Teamsters, but at the end of the day, that didn't matter. I think we could read a little bit into the jury's verdict that they felt that these Teamsters had a legitimate labor objective. And even if they were thuggish bullies who petrified Padma Lakshmi, that is not a federal crime. That's yeah. That all sounds like really interesting stuff. Is there? Like, I'm uh, all your dispatches. Everybody should go read all of Brian's uh, s- stories from the courtroom throughout the trial. They were all great. Um, could you share with us like another like colorful anecdote that popped up during the course of this litigation? You know, this one might be slightly apocryphal, but I, I did hear a, a lot of people. There's a lot of construction going on around the courthouse, and there's a lot of construction workers, many of whom, because it's Boston, are unionized um, and. <laughs> after the uh, after the acquittals, I saw a couple of them sort of celebrating, and oh, okay. I, I also heard a story that um, Carmen Ortiz used to be the U.S. attorney when this case was indicted, and one of those big road signs that that has letters on them that says you know turn left here. Somebody, and this is something that I heard, somebody changed that to F U Carmen. <laughs> <laughs> This uh, one—that really eloquence that Boston's I known for. for myself, I can't <laughs> vouch for that personally, but uh, I, I did. I did hear that from. That, that is kind of the a, a little bit of a legend around the courthouse. <laughs> well, it does sort of set us up for how I'd like to to end talking with you, Brian. This case was obviously contentious. There were lots of you know, interesting things that happened in the courtroom and a lot of attention to this. Um, But at the end of it all, the two sides sort of disagree about what the legacy of this decision might be. So can you tell us going forward what this acquittal means? You know, I think with an acquittal, it's not, you know, the case is over. It's not going to make Supreme Court case law. It's So the effect of it is really limited to, in some ways, egos and, 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 (laughs) and, the public impression of of these sorts of cases because it was a trial and now it's over so it's not going to go up 
the Supreme Court's not going to weigh in on this and say this was right, this was wrong. It's over. Everybody's going home. Uh, you know, John Fiddler, one of the defendants, I saw a picture on Facebook where he was eating a cake that had not guilty written on it in frosting. So, you know, this, it, you know, the, 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 it's over. But I, I do think there is another case with some of the ca- same characters, the same two prosecutors uh, of two Boston city officials who are accused of interceding in a concert series and trying to force a concert series into hiring uh, a different labor union. They're also indicted under the Hobbs Act. I think their lawyers are going to be looking at this case to see how the Teamsters got off. Mm. I think they're going to have an interesting roadmap by arguing to the jury that if all they were trying to do was replace non-union workers with union workers, then what they're doing is completely legal. I think their attorneys are probably going to be taking a close look at that. That trial is going to be starting in January, so we'll obviously be there for that. Great, Brian. Thanks for being with us. It's really interesting to hear some of these behind the scenes and and direct from the courtroom stories. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking okay. to you. It was a pleasure talking to you, Brian. But it's time for you to pack up your knives and go. <laughs> <laughs> I had to. I wasn't going to get out of here without that. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. end our show with something offbeat and we have a little bit of a crazy almost creepy one today bill more than a little i'd say yeah it's very creepy um so andrew strickler wrote a story for us this week that was really something else um an illinois lawyer was hit with a disciplinary complaint that claimed he created a whole series of fake internet accounts for a local rival attorney in Illinois that he had um, faced off in county court against 17 different times. Okay. I mean, I get that attorneys are adversarial. That's how our system works, competitive. But this is pretty bad because um, it was a male attorney that did this. Mm -hmm. And this was a female attorney. And let's get into a little bit of the detail about the kind of accounts he created in her name. Um, Yeah. I mean, they were like intended to like attack her appearance. It was a match.com profile that said that, you know, under a category for favorite hangouts, it was restaurants and the pizza ranch and stuff like that. And uh, under her activities, it said not exercising and that, you know, that she smoked cigarettes and, and that she liked like NASCAR and stuff. So that was one. He signed her up for a magazine for people with diabetes um, he signed her up for Pig International, which is like a periodical on the pork industry. Yeah, just like a lot of, I mean, harassing stuff, Correct. essentially. Yes. And he even did some that weren't necessarily about her appearance, but he signed her up for, I think, Auto Trader, some Auto Trader thing. And she kept getting emails and telephone calls on a Christmas Eve. And that's just like to spam her. Well, yeah. and, then, and then not even just this fake stuff. Uh, he signed up for himself. He signed up a fake Facebook account called John Colon Grade, uh, where he got that name, I don't Great. know, to write like negative reviews on the firm's Facebook page website. And then he went on Martindale and Lawyers.com and gave her a bunch of one-star reviews. So you know, some people is... say that the gender problem is in, in the legal profession is overblown. And to that, I, say, not, I don't, I don't know not. about that. Anyway, right. yeah. But also, this really has the vibe to me when you list out some of these. It's clearly terrible, but it has this feeling of... 
just really juvenile behavior. Like he's all totally. it's, it's kind of like when you used to make like a prank phone call sure. when yeah. you were a, like a tween or well, something. It's, it's or like a really, burn book. It had, yeah, it's it was, that vibe. It was that level of sophistication because, and this is crucial, he did it from the firm computer at oh. his office. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. I mean, so, I guess if you're doing juvenile things, you're not really thinking about like no, sophisticated d- ways to he hide He does not seem, he is allegedly not a smart cookie. Well, what's the name um, of this guy? We don't have to cloak him in anonymity uh, here. I don't know how you pronounce it. It's Drew Quitchow. Kitchow, um, I think. Kitchow, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so this attorney, the um, attorney on the receiving end of this stuff, did not take this lying down. This is actually the part of the story I like the most. Yeah. That we can talk about how somebody with a legal degree empowered herself and fought back against this well, behavior. And I think we say this all the time when we talk about lawyers doing stupid things or doing stupid things against lawyers. You're, you are dealing with people who understand how the court system works. Sure, right. yeah. Sophisticated can, people. Can uh, seek remedies against the, the, <laughs> the, the stuff that yeah. you're doing. And she sure did. Like, she let's, did. Let's talk about some of the so stuff she did. She filed a lawsuit so that she could subpoena or they use the term directed um, but it was essentially a subpoena to match.com to get the IP address of the guy of whoever was was right. doing this so she got the IP address then in the same court action went to Comcast to get the identifying information of the IP address and it turned out that it was this guy's firm and she reached out to a contact that she knew at the firm he confronted the attorney with the evidence that, that this had happened. The guy denied everything. Would have loved to have in, seen the look on his they face. They brought in a right? computer technician, <laughs> searched all the computers, found which one it was. He admitted to it and was fired. Wow. Which that is, feels right. Oh, no. That I mean, feels right. I mean. But she also did some other stuff, right? She filed for uh, a no stalking, no contact order. Totally. So she she won a what's called a no stalking, no contact order against him in February, um, and then it was extended once, and it was dismissed in March. I think once all this other stuff it had happens. gotten yeah. underway, that they knew who it was, and and she had this other action open. But I actually like this as a bit of a lesson, mm-hmm. sort totally. of, to anybody that yeah. has something bad like this happen. There's ways that you can seek these legal remedies and try to address these problems because you never know if it's um, a miffed opponent who's doing it in a juvenile way, which is what this seems like, mm-hmm. or if it's something that's far more serious in terms of like stalking sure. type behavior. Sure. But yeah, so it's a it's a pending disciplinary action. I talked to Andrew about it before we went on the air. He didn't want to speculate as to what the punishments could be because it's all sorts of, you know, it's the Bar Association, all sorts of complicated questions. But it's definitely not good for this guy. <laughs> you didn't need us. I mean... This is something you shouldn't do at a moral level, and right. you also shouldn't do it at a professional level, it sounds like, because that doesn't sound like there's a lot of good stuff in I'm store for our friend Drew. I'm also constantly surprised by people who will do things like this. Um, how could this possibly be worth the repercussions you're <laughs> I don't facing? know, yeah. I, like, I don't know. You know, I mean, yeah. no matter... Maybe we'll get him on the no podcast what kind of opponent you I have, have no idea. <laughs> we can ask him. No. Yeah, so thanks for bringing that, and everybody uh, know that... If bad things happen, your law degree will save you. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, Bill, for being with me today. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Alex. Thank you. We have several people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano. We'd also like to thank our guest, Brian Amaral. Contributing reporters this week include Andrew Strickler, Dorothy Atkins, and Jess Crotchtangle. 
If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've discussed today, check out our website at law360.com backslash podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks and join us again next week.